God's Word. We'll be finishing Second Peter this morning, and we'll be reading from chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. Second Peter 13, uh, Second Peter 3, sorry, 14 through 18. So Peter writes, God speaks, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, a pastor, a friend of mine in Georgia, put together a, a relay team. There was a 180-mile-plus race through the mountains of northern Georgia, and you put together a team of 12 runners, ideally, and then there's 36 segments or legs that it's divided up into. And so, ideally, each runner does three different segments, and it usually comes out that one of yours is a nice one in the middle of the day, then there's one late at night, and then you often get a handoff for one of your runs sometime between 12 midnight and 4 in the morning where nobody's usually thinking about running whatsoever. But as it turned out, our team was doing pretty well. We had finished 33 segments, and we were in third place, had a chance for second place. Now, 33 segments because we ended up with only 11 people. We were short somebody. Somebody didn't show up the day of the race. So what that meant was there were three more segments and you've got an exhausted team of runners who are now saying, hey, it's all yours. You take that last one. No, really, you deserve it. It's all yours. And uh, so we're kind of stuck there with three to go. But then finally something clicked for, for some of us, and that was just the realization. A runner is a runner. And I don't want to be done with it. I want to keep on running. I want to keep going. And so a few of us took those last legs, and we were able to catch that second-place team and and go on. And so the point being there again, a runner doesn't want to stop running. That's who he is, wants to keep on going. Uh, for proof of that, I suppose you could ask Forrest Gump. But we see actually a similar theme in this passage. Peter is telling his people in this passage that we're to be the type of people now that are longing for heaven, and it changes and it fits our personality now. It's not just about finishing life and having a love for all the things here, and then God does some radical transition to change everything about our wants and desires, and now I love the things of heaven when I die. A runner's a runner. A Christian's a Christian. So it said he should be living, she should be living as that Christian here and now. So if you would, look with me at the text, and we'll see evidence of that. Peter starts off, and you've got an outline in your bulletin if you want to make use of that. Um, and, and so Peter says here, Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, all right, 
And so we know if, if we've read some of Paul's letters before that Paul does something similar where he has this therefore and we say, what is the therefore? We look back. Well, the therefore and the these that he's referring to are just from the previous verse, which Dean preached on just last week. And it's the new heavens and the new earth. So Peter's saying, therefore, since we're waiting on the new heavens and the new earth, it should affect how we live now. And he's giving us, he's showing his cards right here at the beginning, telling us the main point of the passage, giving the main point of the sermon, and that's simply this. Right thinking about the future should affect living in the present. Right thinking about the future should affect my present living. If you want to buy a house in a year or so, you start saving now. If you want to make the basketball team in a couple months, you're practicing, you're dribbling, you're shooting, your defense now. If you want to do well on a history test next week, start studying now. If you want to be with Christ later, then we should be living like it now. Now, by no means is that saying how I live earns my salvation later. Absolutely not. God has worked out salvation for his people. He's given them Christ. He's saved them. That should be a reflection now in their lives of where they want to be later. And as we continue in the passage, Peter is going to give us four commands, four imperatives in the scripture. We'll call them the four G's because you're going to see that they're going to each basically start with a G, you know, kind of like the D&L curriculum here. There are four G's around that as well. We've got four G's here that we're going to trace uh, that Paul, uh, Peter gives us uh, in the scripture. Our first one is in verse 14. We'll call it grappling. Uh, Peter says, be diligent. So when you think of be diligent, that essentially means make every effort, work hard, go all out to the utmost, essentially grapple with something. We all need to be diligent about what he's talking about here. We all need to grapple with what he's talking about here. Um, and, a, and a friend of mine uh, humorously says, he says, you know, there's two groups of people. There are type A people, and then there are people who need to be type A people. So, <laughs> in a sense, Peter's saying that, be diligent. Okay, now he's not really saying be type A, but he's saying there is something you need to be diligent about here. So what is it that Peter says we need to be diligent about? It's to be found. Okay? It, needs to be, it, it is to be found. And the being found refers to Christ before whom we will all be held accountable. So the Christian life is essentially bookended by Christ. Our life starts with Christ when we come to him in faith, and then it will be ended at some point, second coming. We all appear before Christ. So here's, he is the one by whom we're to be found. So we've got this nice mix of an active verb, be diligent, to be found passive. So we're going to call this an active waiting. In this period where we're bookended, we've come to, come to Christ, and then we're, going to, we're waiting on his coming, we've got this active waiting stage that we're in. So it's not really about being type A, nor is it about being a nice, laid-back, easy-going person. Um, as a picture of this, think of, think of Mary and Martha. Okay, When Jesus is with them, Mary was commended... Martha was corrected, okay? 
So why was Mary commended? Why was Martha corrected? Was it because Martha was a doer and Mary was a nice, relaxing type? No, that wasn't it. Was it because Martha was running around with her head cut off doing all kinds of stuff and Mary was just resting? No. Say they were actually both very passionate, very active. But Mary was passionate and active about what mattered, being with Jesus. She was passionate and active about that, knowing what the future was like. I'm going to be with Jesus forever, and that's affecting who I want to be with now. So she was letting that affect how she lived now. So as we progress through the text, we see we're diligent. I'm sorry, we're diligent to be found. And how am I to be found by Christ? What, what should that look like? So a young lady, um, you know, hoping to be found, say, by the man of her dreams later on down the road, she's ideally not just sitting around on the couch eating bonbons and watching soap operas all day. That's probably not going to find her the man of her dreams that she wants. She's, you know, seeking to make herself to be the right bait to catch the right fish. So she's wanting to be found in a certain way. Peter, how should I be found? Peter says here, he says, without spot or blemish and at peace. And, and so, to be honest, in, in going through this passage, I would say this is probably one of the most difficult things. What, Peter, what do you mean there? Without blemish or spot? I mean, who here can claim that? I mean, I, I can't. So, I've I got plenty of blemishes. I've got plenty of spots. More than I would want to share and therefore, am I sunk? Are we all sunk? Peter, what, what do you mean here? I mean, you, you even think of the story. You may have heard this illustration before. There's a boy walking down the sidewalk. It's at night. Um, a city bus comes by, splashes up uh, a, a puddle. He looks down. It's dark. Ooh, I've got a couple little spots of mud on my pants. He walks further and he gets under a light and he sees, whoa, you know, I'm, I'm kind of messed up. All my pants are a bit muddy. So finally, he arrives home, walks into the house. The lights are on. His family says, whoa, what happened to you? He looks, and he's just filthy, you know, covered with mud. So he was muddy all along as soon as that truck went through there, that bus went through there. But now when he's before the light, he has a much clearer picture of how dirty, how messy I am. So in the same way, for a Christian, as we come closer to Christ... We actually realize, whoa, look at how much more sin, look at how many more blemishes and spots I actually have that I need to repent of, that I need to confess, that I need to be forgiven of. So we can see that we are all pretty filthy, pretty, pretty spotted, pretty blemished. So why does Peter use that phrase there? It is because in back in 2.13, if you remember... This, cha uh, this book is so much about false teachers and so forth. 2.13, notice how Peter refers to the false teachers. They are blots and blemishes. Okay, they're spots, they're blots, they're blemishes. Ah, there's probably something having to do with what he's saying now in 3.14. And there is. He's saying we, as God's people, should be the opposite of these false teachers. We should be right in our thinking and living. We should be quick to repent, quick to confess our sin, 
as these false teachers were not. We should be growing in our walk with Christ and at peace with him. So there's a balance in that relationship with Christ. The coming of Christ spurs us to be action, spurs us to action. Be diligent, repenting, changing, growing in faith in the areas that I can change within my realm, circle, if you will, of things that, that God has given me that I can um, work in sanctification along with him. And likewise, it encourages us to rest, to be at peace with things that are not by any means, my responsibility. I rest and trust Christ in those in things that I cannot change. It is solely uh, up to him. The second G is to grasp. And Peter encourages us to do that in verse 15, where he says, count the patience. So he's saying, grasp, understand the patience. And this patience that he's referring to here is a, is a special patience. It's not a patience that it's just, oh, the wife, I, I, I'm patient with my husband, he snores, I won't kick him every time he does that. Or a worker, you know, my co-worker is loud on the phone, I'll tolerate that, I'm so patient. No, this is literally, in, in the Greek, it's in of the Lord patience. Of the Lord. This patience is so special that it's only of God. And it's the patience, again, that the dean has talked about in the last couple of weeks, where God is waiting until the right time. Christ is waiting until the right time to come for the salvation of his people, until that perfect time. That's what this patience is talking about. And then as we go on in that verse, I mentioned earlier how Peter brings Paul to mind in multiple ways. One way here, kind of a humorous note that he does, often when Paul would write... He, he writes his letters and he's talking about something and then he gets so excited and passionate about something that he'll take a little brief diversion and talk about that further and then come back to the main idea. Peter's doing a little bit of that here, a little bit of a, pre, a brief diversion from the main idea to say something important about Paul. One of the things that he's, he's, he's communicating here is in reference to Paul's letters, okay? And just the fact, and kind of a sermon within a sermon, we won't go into much about this because Dean's going to preach about it much more later, but the fact that Peter mentions Paul's writings suggests that, hmm, maybe the New Testament was actually coming about and being formulated even at that early, early time in the first centuries there. That it's not something that, if you're familiar with the Jesus seminar wackos from the last 10 years or so, where they do kind of their you know, whack-a-mole thing where it's, Oh, did, was this part of the Bible? No, we don't think so. We'll roll the dial, dice on this one. This one's not either, you know, and, they, and that's they, how they say the early church put the Bible together. By no means. God sovereignly superintended the putting together of the canon of the New Testament. And we see a little bit of evidence here by Peter mentioning Paul's letters. But what's a little, what we're going to focus on now is Peter says, some of Paul's stuff is hard to understand. Many of you would say, and I do too, well, yeah, I can relate. Paul, you did write some things that were a little bit difficult. Um, what are those? And Peter doesn't tell us. Man, Peter, you could have told us exactly what they were, and we would know, and what's going on here. So we don't know for sure. We don't know exactly what he's talking about there. We can, we can get some ideas, okay, some possibilities. Um, G.K. Chesterton, he says... You can kind of picture something like this, you know, a, a, a mountain pass, a, a ridge, and you've got a very steep cliff on either side of this ridge. 
Take, go too far that way, you're down. Go too far that way, you're down to destruction as well. And he says, picture on either side of this ridge, you've got these, these um, themes, if you will, of Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. The love of God, the holiness of God. So these things are in tension with each other. Both perfectly true, perfectly scriptural. If you're to, if, but if you go and overemphasize one, you better, make sure, you better be careful about that because you may lose the value of the other. You've got the grace of God, the morality as well. Justification, sanctification. And so some think that he may have been talking about something with justification and sanctification. So, for instance, if you go too far with, with justification, only emphasizing justification without factoring in sanctification, you can end up in licentiousness. I can do whatever I want to do. But likewise, if you go too far in emphasizing sanctification, it's all about me and what I do and da-da-da-da, without marrying in the tension of justification, then you end up destroyed in legalism and moralism. So these false teachers, in some way or another, they were going along that catwalk and they were going down into destruction by what they were teaching. And along the way, they're trying to take as many with them as they can. And Peter uses those false teachers to lead into his third point, the third G in the passage in verse 17. And what he's saying here is that these false teachers, they're described as ones who twist the word of God. And that word is such a, uh, a powerful one that he uses there. It's, it's, it's like they're wrenching, they're distorting it, they're torturing it. Graphic words for how they're knowingly and perversely uh, doing uh, that to the word of God. And they're, they're described as essentially unlearned, would be one way to describe them, unlearned in their system of doctrine, it's perverted, and unstable. Their interpretation is bad. So Peter says, okay, consider them, but now you, and he is distinctly emphasizing the you, therefore. He says, you, therefore, are different in verse 17. And you, therefore, need to be on guard. Our third G. We need to be on guard, and we need to be on guard continually. It's a present tense verse, not a one-time thing, but always be on guard you know better, never let down your guard. Uh, the expression to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And uh, growing up in New Orleans, uh, often there would be a warning of, of, a, of a coming hurricane. And so my parents, as soon as that happened, we'd bail. Whoop, we're gone to Mississippi or Arkansas or somewhere, and half the time we'd come back and nothing happened and you get laughed at or whatever. But they, they took that knowledge of the possibility of the hurricane coming, and, and we were gone. Having that knowledge, they made use of it. Peter's saying the same thing here. Having the knowledge, be on guard always. And we're to be on guard to the extent that, the end of verse 17, you don't lose your own stability. Never lose your stability. And that word there, that stability word, is pretty much the only, one, only time it's used in Scripture here in Second Peter. So many unique things in this letter. But the, the picture of the word is such that outside the Bible, the, the word picture for stability was like a beam of light, unwavering, steady, fixed. 
And it would make sense that Peter, nicknamed the Rock, would want his people to be stable, unwavering, steady, never losing their stability, and how he wants that for us as well now. I mean, there's so much in our culture that would threaten our stability to twist the teaching of God to say, you know, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, it's okay to do it. If it feels good, that's fine. No, Peter's calling us back again to remember what I'm thinking, what I'm looking to in the future. Being with Christ forever affects my living now. So we're to continually be on guard. In, in our house, one of our points of contention uh, is the vacuum cleaner. The vacuum cleaner is always out. And I feel like when it's always out, that means it's never, stuff's never done. Can't really rest because there's the vacuum cleaner. You might come in the house and walk into, whoa, there's the vacuum cleaner in the kitchen. And, and next day, here it is in the den. Um, can we put that up? No, because Donna's always on guard. To clean up someone's air, there's a piece of cereal, soup, zap it up. Here's a, somebody else's little mistake, some dirt, zapping it up. So she's always on guard for all that, that mess, that air. And Peter's saying actually the same thing. Never put down the vacuum cleaner, always be on guard, putting off instability and false teaching and putting on what we see in the next verse, putting on what we see here in verse 18. Peter finishes with a final exhortation to his beloved to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this is another one that's a continual, that be on guard is an always present tense, always do it. Grow is a present tense, always do this. So, you know, for me, initially, this it was a little bit nebulous. How do I grow in the great, how do you do that? Grow in grace? Okay, knowledge, I can see that a little bit, but does this mean that I, you know, I can't just take two B12 graces and a multi-knowledge vitamin and I'm all set? That, you know, that doesn't work. So growing in grace, though, is essentially focusing on the relational element, okay? You've got this relationship focus with Christ, and we saw that so much in the first chapter where where Peter gave us these specifics of things to add to each other, love, virtue, steadfastness, all these different things that help us directly in a relationship, growing in grace with Christ. Then he also says, though, here, knowledge. Knowledge helps as well. The mental, the thinking, the intellectual, the deeper understanding of who Jesus is. Deeper understanding of who he is. The more we know Christ relationally, Through grace, the more we call upon and desire his grace, the more we know about Christ, the more varied and in depth can be the ways that we call upon his grace. We now know more about the ways he can help me in this way or another. You know, it may be the case that we're more wired for one or the other, more the relational or more the the knowledge or intellectual. And, and right, rightfully so, we're, we're well taught to avoid the, the head knowledge. You know, head knowledge, that, that all that, you know, if that's all it is, it's, it's pretty worthless. But biblically, it's not supposed to be that way. Never does the Bible give us knowledge just for the sake of knowledge. Right thinking should influence right living. Right thinking should influence right living. Picture that, you could think of it. 
you know, so here's a football player getting ready to go play in the game. He says, I don't need to know the game plan. I don't need to study any of that stuff. I just like to go out there and be passionate and smack people around. So he goes out there, he starts hitting people, and he's doing pretty well, but then he actually starts hitting some of the people on his own team because he doesn't know where he's supposed to be on this play or that way. And he didn't learn what the technique should look like. So we can see his lack of knowledge actually hurt him in this way. But ideally, as he studies the plan, it helps him to know what to do, when to do, where to be, and then he gets more and more fired up and excited about the upcoming game. So knowing that and the right thinking actually helps him to be more passionate. In the same way, as we hunger for God's word and we're taught it, uh, it should make us all the more passionate about God as well. So for us at Redeemer, we want to be hungering all the more for God's word and and telling our pastors, telling our, our, our elders and our life group readers, thank you for teaching us the word of God. Keep doing it. Help me with this. Teach me God's word. Help me to apply it. Children, you know, stay on your parents. When you go home uh, after lunch today, don't say, let me go play the video game. Let me teach me God's word after the meal today. Oh, what a great afternoon it will be. So, but no, so seriously, we want to be hungering for God's word as a congregation. The look of hope should produce the life of holiness. The look of hope to the future should produce a life of holiness. Um, laziness isn't always so much about doing nothing, just sitting there doing nothing. Laziness is often being passionate about something that's, that's worthless. Okay? So we are, we are all passionate about something, and, may, and we need God's word to direct us in what that should be. So... What are we longing for today? Is it Christ? And thinking through this, um, in, in devotions recently, just been reading about Lot and being troubled about that Lot we mentioned earlier in Second Peter, but Lot is one who um, was troubled in his soul. Second Peter tells us that. And he ended up... When, when he and Abraham were going to separate, Abraham gives him the first choice. Where do you want to be? And Lot chooses this land near Sodom and Gomorrah because it looks good. It's beautiful. He ends up choosing that, and he ends up taking strides down into to worldliness, where he gets more and more and more absorbed into the, the worldliness such that he is almost immune to how bad that culture is. And we see that when the two angels come to rescue him and they want to take him out. And there's that sad word there about him. It says he lingered. He lingered. He, was, he had become so worldly that he, he was tied to that culture. And we hear later in Scripture that it tormented his soul. So God, by his grace, res, rescued Lot out of there. Even as he's being rescued, though, he didn't want to go the full distance. He said, well, can I just go here to this closer city? But we get this powerful illustration there of one who was worldly and who, again, by God's grace, he was rescued as we all are. But we can see how right thinking about the future, about being with Christ, could have had a stronger influence on who he was and how he was living in the present. So practically speaking... For us, in this life, when our hands are filled with pebbles, 
you know, the pebbles that this world offers, we need to let go to grasp the diamond that is Christ. And we need to constantly weed the world out of our hearts so that we can cry out the same as that Peter finishes here, that we can cry out now to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity, that we would look to the day of eternity with Christ and that it would affect how we live now. Will you pray with me? Lord, there is uh, much that is challenging um, in your word and difficult, uh, especially for me as, as I read through that and struggle with that and see the many, many areas in my own life where I need repentance, where I've been uh, all about me. But Lord, we thank you as well that you, when you call us to something, you give us grace, grace upon grace. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And to you be the glory, both now and forever. Amen.